as far as we can tell, the uh, neural network model has never been used for this purpose. It was more of a, of a property and casualty model for predictive analysis. This is the first time that we know of that is actually applied to build a life mortality table. Welcome to the Seeing Beyond Risk podcast. I am Ping Tang Lin, your research podcast host for this episode. And today, I have a very special CIA research paper to share with you. We've been hearing and seeing many interesting and practical use cases for predictive analytics lately, and constructing life insurance mortality tables is just the newest milestone. Joining me for this episode is Sylvain Goulet, one of the authors for this paper. His team went and created a deep learning life mortality table to compare against the CIA 2014 table, which uses the more traditional Whitaker-Henderson graduation method. You're going to hear him talk about the types of models they used, how they went about calibrating it, and the sort of interesting findings from this, I must say, very cutting edge research. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Sylvain on alternative methods for creating the Canadian mortality table. Thank you, Sylvain, for joining us today. Glad to have you here to talk about your research paper on alternative models for the CIA 2014 mortality table using a really interesting predictive analytics technique. To start off, could you begin by just describing a little bit about yourself, your background, and your experience with working with predictive analytics and mortality table construction? Thank you very much for having me first. I'm a consulting actuary with the firm uh, Eckler Limited, and I'm based in Toronto. I specialize in, in the life, health, and annuity business for insurance companies. I have been consulting mainly uh, in Canada and the Caribbean, but I have also done a number of projects in South America, Europe, the Middle East, India, and Southeast Asia. We have done a large number of mortality and morbidity studies for our working Indian and Caribbean clients, hence my interest in exploring various construction techniques of tables. And although we have not constructed mortality tables from scratch until this project, we have developed and constructed critical illness incidence rates from scratch using Canadian health statistics. So the principles are the same. So it's really uh, a new type of uh, project for me. We jump right into uh, these alternative methods rather than using traditional one. Now, in terms of the motivation for this study, could you just describe you know, what was the genesis of this study and who were the parties involved and even how did the CIA get involved? Well, the initial motivation came from a discussions with uh, what we call a friendly actual consulting firm based in South Africa. The firm name is QED, Actuaries and Consultant. And at that time, the CIA tendered the project for the constructions of a new mortality table, the CIA 2014 table. Uh, we made a proposal to the CIA, which was based on traditional and non-traditional construction methods. So the approach will be what I've been that ECLA would have done the traditional approach and QED would have done the non-traditional approach because they have a lot of experience in, in those methods. At first, we lost the tender, the CIA tender, to Mr. Bob Howard, 
who proposed the constructions of the new table based on traditional method uh, using the Winterker and the Sun method. Then the CIA came back to us and invited us to make a two-part counterproposal. The first one was to peer review Bob's award uh, work, which was interesting by itself. And the second one was to explore non-traditional method. I think the CIA was intrigued by those non-traditional methods, and that's why they came back to us. So we revised our proposal along uh, those lines, and it was accepted. Is there a particular reason why the CIA was intrigued by the alternative method? Like, like is it being done in the industry as well? And is that, that why they started looking at the CIA 2014 as a potential avenue for doing something alternative? Well, first of all, it's not traditional for sure in North America. So we haven't really seen this in the U.S. or Canada, for, for instance. Interesting enough, South Africa is very progressive in that regard. And the actors there were very keen. And it's also newer method. So I guess that's the reason why the CIA was interested, so that they remain at the front end of those techniques rather than using traditional methods. And in our proposal, we pointed out the, some of the pitfalls of the traditional methods and some of the advantages of alternative methods. So I think we pique the CIA interest enough that committee who was going to do the selections extended, if you wish, the project to two projects instead. Yeah, that was interesting from that point of view. Maybe the committee is made up of uh, newer, younger people, more keen to explore new techniques going forward as opposed to a more traditional approach. Yeah, it's definitely very cutting edge. When I was going through the paper, it was just blowing my mind how you would do all this. So for you personally then, what was the most interesting finding from the study? It's find a lot of interesting stuff. Um, (laughs) So to name one in particular is difficult. First of all, it's important to note that the two alternative methods are models. They're not static tables. So they can be used to predict future mortality rates. So the data, the raw data uh, are from 2009 to 2019. But from there, we actually created 17 tables. So one for each table individually, 2009 to 2019, one for all the years on a combined basis, more or less like the CIA 2014 is, plus five additional future tables for 2020 to 2024. So we've made 17 tables for each model. That's very different than a static table like the CIA 2014. The second thing I found is that by definitions, a model creates a smoother set of tables than graduated rates. For example, at every issue age that we have, we had a different select period because the model did not assume a fixed select period like 20 years in the case of the CIA 2014. If you look at the CIA 2014, you will see that there's a jump from at an age X plus 20 years to X plus 21 years. In some places, for some ages, it's younger ages especially, it's more evident. On these tables, we don't see this because it's a model. It's a linear model. So when it goes from tradition 20 to 21, it is naturally smooth, but it it prevents the use of a select period. The other thing which I found interesting is that once these models have been calibrated, the way we calibrated that is interesting as well. So we use uh, the data from 2009 to 2015, I believe, my correction is correct, 
to define the variables, to calibrate it. And then we projected the mortality to 2016, 17, 18, 19. And then we look at the result against the raw data. And then we adjusted the variables so that the table became predictive. So going forward now, if we have one more additional year of data, as usually the CI studies are, what happened is that in the case of these models, it's easy to add one more year of data to the model. And then we could double check that the model is close to this, this new year. Or we could make some very small adjustment to the model to make it work. Finally, what I find is that there's a lot more judgment involved in using non-traditional method because you have to fit those variables to generate the, the results. When you do a construction table, like the CIA 2014 tables, you pretty well. So the last things that I find interesting is that there's more judgment involved here in non-traditional method. We have to make sure that we do not overfit the data. That is by cutting the variable too finely or having too many variables. Otherwise, we will just reproduce the data, which is not per se the objective. The objective is to make a model whereby the data fits well within the model. For example, uh, under the CIA 2014 table and the raw data underneath it, underlying it, female smoker rates at age 85 to 90 are actually greater than the male smoker rates. And that it shouldn't be really. Uh, what well, we knew it shouldn't be, or if it is, we, we could, cannot explain it. Uh, so in the case of a model, we can avoid it. In the case of a traditional methodology, you cannot avoid it. It's there, you graduate it around it. So unless you interfere and change the data, if you wish, or the, you override the numbers, it just won't happen. So the actual table does show a small um, area, 85 to 90, where the female smoker rates are greater under the traditional method. You won't see this under the, the model. So those are the kind of four findings that becomes obvious when working with these models. Wow. I guess the model itself could work around some of the, I guess, disadvantages of the traditional approach. Yes, that's correct. And in fact, one of the things that's also is very, is very um, key here is that in traditional models, if you have data missing in between or too little data and so forth, at some point you, won't, you may not be able to graduate the table right. because you have data missing. The model, think of the model as you throw, you throw a baseball and the ball is moving in, in straight directions. Even if you couldn't see the ball at some point, well, the ball still follow the same trajectory. So we can actually project data or, or results or rates where in fact there is no existing data or raw data to look at. That's, that's a significant difference and, advent, and a big advantage in constructing models. And my understanding is you can not only do that for just the 2014 data, but as well as future points in time. Yes, future point in yeah. time. That's why it says we, we, we quote, we train the data from 2029 to 2015. We train them to forecast the raw data for, for 2016, with the experience for 2016 to 2019, adjusted the variables. And then once the model reproduce or come close, not reproduce, but could actually fit the data well for each one of the years, uh, past and future, then we had enough confidence that we can project it for an additional five years. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe 10 years would have been too much, but see if you have one more year of experience, you put it into the model, you tweak the, the variables a bit, the functions, and then you fit one more year of data. That takes no time. Instead, if you were going to construct the table again using Whitaker Anderson, now reflecting one more year of data, it will take a lot more time uh, because you have to start from scratch. Right. That's what the methodology says. Right. In our case, we will not say that. In the case, we will just say, well, let's assume that these variables are still correct. Let's project it and see where, where it takes us. And if it takes us to the right place, then we know it's working properly. And in fact, one thing which would be, which was interesting, which I thought after the fact that I did not put in the report, take 2020, 2020 and 2021, in fact, with the COVID experience where we have extra mortality, the model could actually throw those one out because they're not supposed to be there. They're due to pandemic. But if you capture it and construct a table in the, in the traditional method, you won't be able to avoid it because they form part of the, of the data. While the model did not expect to have COVID death. Well, I didn't understand that from the paper. So that's, that's really interesting. No, it wasn't in the paper. It wasn't yeah. in the paper. That's why I thought yeah, after the fact, I thought about it. Uh, but there would, there would be techniques to, to eliminate those extra death because suddenly there's, a, there's an increase. Uh, so a sudden increase could be walked, walked out of the model mm-hmm. uh, from the raw data. While in graduations, you can't because you don't know which one to take out. Exactly. Right. So then, then could you describe the alternate mortality table construction process? Just give people a brief overview of, because I understand you had two models and you, had, you applied the predictive analytics approach to both of them, but there are two different flavors to it. So just describe that. So I think the best way to do it is to explain in simple terms how this works. So if you take a generalized linear model, go back in time at school, and basically the mortality rate would be defined as A plus B time X variable plus C time Y plus D time Z. That's a linear model. It's a linear relationship between the variables, which in this case would be gender, issue age durations, and, and the rates. A, general, a generalized additive model or GAM extend the GLM uh, model by providing some additional way to transform those, those variables. So in this case, now the mortality will be defined as constants A. And instead of plus B times X, it will be a functions of B times X plus a functions of C times Y plus a functions of D times Z. You will have to calibrate those functions so that when you look at the fitting at the end, so you, you do you fit it in, uh, then you look at the result at the end, how closely it matches the experience from the raw data, and then you adjust those factors. So the GLM approach is just a simple linear relationship. The general additive model is one where you have variations, if you wish, of those variables to a better fit. When we look at the neural network model, or sometimes it's called deep learning, we had different layers of GLL to make better predictions. So you will have more maybe correlations between, let's say, the HUH and smoking habit, or we use the observation use and maybe the gender. So there's all kinds of permutations you could think of. So it's like having a multiple layers of GAM, if you wish, within the neural uh, network model. And you make that model, so more like a most artificial intelligence, you make that model learn from its mistake. 
So if we act, if we add a relationship and factors and two or three gamma on top of each other, and it, the result gets worse, then you tell the program to walk it back. If it gets better, then you tell the program to fine tune the numbers. And all this is done at super speed computer things. So it's a, it's a decision tree, if you wish, at, at every point of observations, at every issue eight, at every durations for all genders, smoking status. So there's really multiple points that you look at. Again, once you build that, so the neural network model is more like a very complex GLM models with different layers, if you, if you wish. So is it correct to think then the deep learning model as different layers of the GAM model, whereby the GAM functions are basically, quote unquote, discovered by yes. the computer? That's exactly what that is. Okay. Whereas in the GAM situation, do you calibrate assuming some type of function already? We calibrate it by looking at the end result. It's more, it's more of a manual process. Okay. rather than having the model made those decisions. Right. And so why did you go about creating two models? Well, it's simple, really. We thought that one, well, we're, we're exploring alternative method, and one was simply not enough. So we had two, but if we had had more time, we could have had three models. I'm not sure what the third one would have been, but we, we could have done more. But these two are the GL and GM models are, have been done in some places to, to construct tables. As far as we can tell, the uh, neural network models has never been used for this purpose. It was more of a, of a property and casualty model for predictive analysis. This is the first time that we know of that is actually applied to build a, a light mortality table. Very, very cutting edge. Mm -hmm. What variables did you consider in the construction of these models? Did you find any surprising or even unsurprising relationships that emerge among those variables? Well, yes and no. Uh, the variables that we use are really the ones that you would expect that determine mortality rates or that are all our functions. of. So gender is one thing, of course, the smoking habit, issue age, and policy durations or attain age. Those are the four more important variables that we've used. We also included the year of observations. For example, 2009, 2010, 2011. As I mentioned, we've been able to build, construct, not only one mortality table, but 17 of them, because we introduced the year of observations as one of the variables. Well, in the case of the CIA 2014, all the data were, in effect, put all together to get more data. Uh, Bob Howard made an adjustment with mortality improvement to bring the data from 2009 to 2014 and so forth, and to do the reverse from 2019 all the way back to 2014. But it's one table, all the data combined. In our case, we were able to create different tables altogether because we had the year of observations. The thing we also had, which we removed at the end, was the face amount of the policies. In other words, why could you not construct a mortality table for face amount bands? And the problem with that is that it throw all kinds of things into the mix. There's adjustment to the face amount. There's sometimes it could be decreasing face amount. Sometimes a policy will increase its exposure or decrease it. There may be situation also that is built in. So 
an average person buying a policies in 2009 will probably buy a lower face amount than they will in 2019, 10 years later. So there were two external factors affecting the face amount to make the face amount a reliable variable. So we actually remove it at the end. In terms of the resulting models, the neural, neural, the neural network model and the GAM model, what's the major differences in the results? How do they compare to one another? Well, the neural network model, as I said, is more, more complex than the generalized additive models. It requires more work to create in the first place and more judgment in the selections of variable. It's more sensitive to a change in, in variables, if you wish. So a small, a small change in the variable or in the functions affecting the, vari the variable could actually have a, a larger impact. So we had to verify the result really, really finely, and we had to make sure that the results were intuitive. The one I use as an example is that the select period and the older female smoker that I've used before in terms of example. So we don't have that. And in fact, it's possible that if we had given too much weight to the gender female and smoking habit smokers and the older ages, it's very possible that the end, that the neural network network models would have generated higher female rate than male rate because we would have overfit the data. So we had to, to balance this overfitting. That's mainly how they differed. Uh, in fact, in some results, when you look at the general additive models, when you compare one to the other, the ratio is, is linear. And by definitions, because you look at, let's say, if, let's say you take a smoker to non-smoker ratio. Our first test of the general generalized linear models is that the ratio of smoker to non-smoker was constant. And of course, we know that's not true. So then we, in the general additive model, we had a ratio which changed, but always in one direction. So it was higher, let's say, in the 20s and 30s, and then going down as you get older in, in a kind of linear fashion. So it was not the same ratio but the difference was a linear. And if you look at the, at the uh, neural network model, uh, it's a lot more than what you expect because now we have, we have more variables that affected these ratio. So it's not because you were a smoker and versus non smoker that you had one ratio. It depended also of your TNH. It depended also of the durations. So when you had these functions, now you have a function not only let's say of age, and smoking status, but you had a third one, age and smoking status, and then age and durations and smoking status, and then gender and smoking status. So we had multiple combinations of each of these variables, with meaning that when you finish with this, the smoker to non-smoker ratio is not linear at all. And if you fact, in fact, you look at the raw data, then they're not linear at all. It's very, very clear in all my years of experience and working with tables, the ratios are close to 1.25 at younger ages. By the time you reach 45, it's 2.5 times. And by the time you reach uh, 80, is 2 to 1. And by the time you reach 100, it's almost 1 to 1. Uh, and that's a natural expectation. That's what the neural network uh, model gave us. And that's why we're so pleased with it. Right. So then hypothetically, what 
what would someone need to watch out for if they wanted to actually put the neural me- the neural network model into practice? Uh, well, uh, all models may always are flawed by definitions. If we if the method overfit the data, then there's a risk of assuming that an anomaly we're going go, going to continue. Again, let's take this female uh, smoker rates. Uh, in this case. Uh, the CIA 2014. As long as you, as long as you use it, if if people if factories use it for the next ten years, the older female smoker will have higher rates than female than male uh, smoker rates. So, at the same time, if the models try to eliminate all the anomalies completely, then the result um, are not reproduced really and will not reproduce the the data too well. So. What they need to watch for is that they need to use a balanced approach between what is really expected, i.e. female has to be lower than male, but is it possible that it got closer than what it did in the past? And the answer is yes, because if you look at the data independently uh, each year, they all have similar uh, anomaly for the female smoker rates. Then what I did, I remember that I looked back then uh, the uh, the, um, the 9704 table and the, the 692 table, and this relationship was trending towards that. It's just that there's been such a long time between the 9704 table and the 2014 table that we miss the gap in between. We didn't see it coming. But again, this is where the model comes from. If your model is good, we can predict what, what's going to look like. Doesn't mean that would be accurate. But when I said earlier that we, we created 2020 tables to 2025 tables, maybe we could have created a 2030 table and see where it's going. The direction would be right, most likely. The quantum may not be as exact because mortality improvement will change. But nonetheless, I think I believe because there was such a big gap between the 9704 uh, study and the 2014 study. And that's why we didn't see that gap coming. Interesting. Your paper also made a really insightful comment that you know traditional mortality and mortality improvement tables really just relies on, on the passage of time as proxy variables for unknown factors that estimates future mortality rates. So how much do you think predictive analytic techniques, such as you know what you've looked at for this research paper could actually improve on the traditional estimation methods for the future? Well, I believe it could. The problem is that you don't know what to look for. And that's in section 6.2 of our report where we talk about that. So we assume that, let's say the 2019 raw data shows lower mortality rate than 29 because there's implicit uh, mortality improvement. And in fact, indeed, the CIA has developed this mortality improvement scales that varies by year. So one year, you have one year of improvement, two years, you have two years of improvement. So that's why it says that what we observe is the passage of time as an impact, but we don't know if that's a real cause. So I speculate that maybe there are other variables at play, such as global warming index, a global warming, because we do global warming affect the health of people to some extent. It may create more, not here, but it may create, well, it may create more situations of drought, for example. If it's uh, to you, it may communicate uh, more diseases and so forth. And also, 
what about the general population's health uh, index? For example, people now, nowadays, especially younger people, are a lot more interested in, in eating well. Uh, less people smoke nowadays than they used to smoke in the past. Obviously, we have smoker and non-smoker mortality, but we all know about passive smoking. So even if you're not a smoker, you may be affected by others who smoke. So instead of passage of time, what if we were going to look and develop a global warming index, as an example, and a general population health index? And maybe those are the real variable that should be used in, the, in these predictive models. And if we project that the global warming index is going to deteriorate further until, let's say, 2050, but that at the same time, the general population health index, people are more aware, is going to improve things. How do these interact? And maybe we would predict that, let's say, in 2025 and, and beyond, there will be no mortality improvement factors anymore. Why? Because each index could actually offset one another. The global warming effect would make things worse for a lot of people, but at the same time, people will take care of their health better. So who knows what it is? So the problem is that you don't know what to look for. But certainly, if you explore this area, then yes, predictive analysis is actually something that could be used for, uh, for mortality studies and any such studies. Yeah, I, I think it, I could definitely see it definitely opening up the toolbox quite a bit for actuaries going forward. A lot of more tools in the toolbox, definitely. So then how might that affect how an actuary would conduct the experience studies going forward for mortality rates? Well, to answer your questions, I think first and foremost, competency in doing these type of models is essential. They're not easy. They are complex in nature and a lot more difficult to implement in traditional constructions of tables. So you need to be, or the actor is doing it, needs to learn these techniques very well. Uh, they need to be competent in it because otherwise you could play with something that you have no control over and you will spin your wheels all the time and get nowhere. So understanding how the model works from a technical point of view, I think is, is the number one advice. The other thing I will do is that in constructions of models, traditional constructions, if you do your work well, you almost cannot avoid but to fit the data because that's what the graduation does. So if you have enough data to, to do it, you graduate between two points, you get something which is reasonable, but maybe not the true direction, maybe not, and definitely not productive. If you use these models on the, on the other end, you evaluate how well they fit the data, but you also need to have a threshold. Going, going back to what I said earlier, you don't want to overfit the data. If you're too close to the data, then you, you create a static table. That's what you want to avoid. So you need to be able to create ahead of time the threshold by which you will judge if your tables, if your models uh, are good enough in terms of uh, fitting properly. Uh, so, and we have two different techniques we use in the paper that we describe. The other thing is, the last thing is that you should need as much data as possible. As I mentioned earlier, the advantage of these models is that you don't need to have as much data as under traditional constructions. If you're missing a part of the data, you can in effect bypass it using the models if you, if you don't have too many of these things. And the graduations, that's a no-no. If you don't have data, you can graduate them. So nonetheless, you need to have as much data as possible. 
So even if you were going to build, let's say, uh, such a model using one medium-sized company's two years of data, <clears throat> obviously you won't have enough data and you won't be able to create anything. You'll be able to create a models, but you won't, you won't be able to see if it fits properly because there's not enough point to compare. Where can listeners go to learn more about you know, your study and about using predictive analytics in a more actuarial context? Uh, one of our contributors, Ron Richmond from South Africa, has written a few papers on this. So on page 39 uh, in the footnote in our report, we actually provide some references to these research paper. So I would suggest to download those papers and that certainly will be your first point of entry. It's, it's because it's focused on the model itself, the mechanics, but also on uh, the typing that you could build uh, like for, for mortality tables, for instance. In your personal opinion, Sylvain, what do you think the profession can do to further promote predictive analytics going forward? I think the CIA could encourage uh, actuaries to use those models through education notes and research papers. One thing which I thought also is that they could look back at past construction of tables, whether it's all the CIA tables or even the CIA critical illness incidence rate tables, and reconstruct it using these models. Then we could compare these results to the published tables and see how, how, how it is. In fact, if you look at the CIA 2014 table, take our report and in the appendix, we compare the CIA 2014 tables to both the GAM and the NNM uh, models results. And it's very interesting to see how they compare to one another. For one thing, our models all show smoother results than the CIA. The CIA table will show some discontinuity between duration 20 and 21 when the select period drops, for example. The CIA will show that female smoker age 85 to 90 is actually higher than male. We don't show that. The CIA table will show that around age 102 and three, the rates are almost flat to 114 and then jump to one at age 115. Now, obviously that's less important because it's older ages and the rates are high anyhow. Nonetheless, if you look at our tables, it's a smooth progression towards one at age 115. Why? Because it's a factorial models, different factors, different variables. And as, 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 as you apply those factors, you have a smooth transitions. So everything talks to our table being smoother than the CIA table. Now, that's not to criticize the CIA table. Uh, that's not purpose at all. It's just a way to stress that a model actually create a smoother relationship between ages, durations, and so forth. While the CA table try to look at the data and try to fit it as much as possible. Nonetheless, the general patterns of all these tables, certainly for key ages, are very comparable, which is reassuring in many yeah, ways. It's a good result. <laughs> it's a good result. Uh, that overall it's... Uh, and I don't know if I did it in the... I think I believe I did it in the report. Let me have a quick look. At the end of the report, uh, when I put the various, yes, I did. When you put uh, the, when I put out different graphs, Appendix D, comparison of CIA, GAM, and, and, and MM. On the first graph of each section, I put, and I'm just going to estimate the numbers, but it's a cost 
the single premium cost of mortality. For example, I'm looking at issue H35, male non-smoker, CIA table, show a cost of $28.42, the GAM of uh, $20.03, and the uh, network show to a $9.74. So there's a variations, but it's not a huge variations, and different ages will show different results as well. So I encourage everyone that is listening to look at those comparisons because it really show how the three tables compare to one another. So that's uh, it's, yep. it's key. Definitely. Well, thank you, Savannah, today for your time and for sharing your research and findings and giving us a little bit of context as to what the report is telling us. And I encourage everyone listening to go on to the CI website and download a copy of the report. Thank you, Savannah. You're most welcome. Nice to have done this. And good luck to, to everyone in exploring these new methodologies. Excellent. We now have several dozen episodes of the CIA's Seeing Beyond Risk podcast. I encourage you to check out Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts to binge on past episodes. Most importantly, please subscribe to be notified when a new episode is released. We would also like to hear from you as well. Feel free to leave a rating, comment, or send any suggestions or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. As well, we're always looking for content on our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have any ideas to share, send it over to seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. This is Ping Tang Lin, your host for this episode, and thank you for tuning into the Seeing Beyond Risk podcast.